This is The Last Coffee House, and we're talking about a book. It is Hashtag Republic. Not Republic, what the... Hashtag Republic by Cass Sunstein. Cass Sunstein also wrote uh, Nudge. I remember that book from a while ago. It had some good good stuff in it from what I remember, but I did read it a while ago. I've, I can't remember much of it. So this, however, was published in 2017. It's about how today's internet is driving political fragmentation, polarization, extremism, and it offers some solutions to those issues. So what is the content of the book, pray tell. He talks about the daily me and how social media creates this kind of a, a cultural daily me where you go onto a social media and get to see who you are. <laughs> You know, uh, you get to find people who are like you and bond with them through these means. And he asked the question, does Facebook really curate a reflection of who you are? Or is Facebook creating you by the use of their algorithms and what they show you and what they don't show you and all that? So he talks about the, the ability to filter. So we have a lot of power to filter the kind of content that comes in and out. And he questions whether that's actually the best way to be doing it, which I'm definitely with him there. And he, he says that what these kinds of interactions, social media interactions, action should accomplish is that people are exposed to materials they would not have chosen in advance and that we get to share a wide range of common experiences so i i mean i love those two things in principle for sure because you have the idea of people who whatever they are you know in their little box of their person without having gone on social media or talked to somebody else they have whatever they have you know the whole point for them to interact with somebody else is to get other perspectives and i don't mean that in a normative reductive kind of a way just based on gender or skin color or something like that. I mean, I mean like substantive different perspectives about ideas and modes of functioning and behavior, all that sort of stuff. So that should be the point of interacting. And on social media, you have the greatest resource that you could have for interacting with people who have those kinds of substantive differences from you and you can share with them. And the wide range of common experiences is really important because it creates the substrate for being able to function in a body politic, to have that civic engagement uh, and feel like you're all on the same team. He makes a note of being careful about claiming causation, you know, when it comes to causation versus correlation, which I appreciate. I think everybody should say that all the time to make sure that's very, very clear. <laughs> Although he doesn't actually reference much by way of substantive studies or scientific principles or conclusions or anything like that. He's mostly just making arguments in the ether about these kinds of things, more philosophy than anything else. Then he gets into some free speech jurisprudence, talks about the public forum doctrine, which is something like if you... Something like a public park is a public forum. You know, anybody can go there and say whatever they want subject to their restrictions under the First Amendment. But some places are not public forums. Uh, and I know one case I think I was just reading about was like on a military base. You can't go on a military base and claim it's a public forum because it's public owned and just start spouting off whatever political stuff you want to spout off. A military base is there is there to train, you know, military personnel. Just like if you want to go to NIH or something like that and go into one of their labs and talk about your politics. It's like those things are not public forums in the same way as like a, a park bench or a public street or something like that is. So I think that's a reasonable restriction when it comes to speech. Although I'm, I found, I find any kind of restrictions on speech anathema in general, and you really have to convince me to allow them. But this one in particular makes, it makes perfect sense. Uh, people have access to public sidewalks. You know, that's an important part of public forum. There was a proposed right to instruct representatives to have access to representatives to be able to instruct them. I think that was the term that he used, which is kind of funny. And <laughs> you, you wonder how that would work. That'd probably be a way too overbroad kind of a thing. You know, it's like they're asleep at their personal home and you're knocking on their window like, hey, can we talk about healthcare? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if that would have worked, but so they left that one out, and I think justifiedly. And my, one of my biggest heroes, James Madison, actually opposed the Bill of Rights. And I think I've, I know I've read this before, and I should have been more aware of what the founders did and didn't do, but he actually opposed the Bill of Rights, and Jefferson supported it. Uh, Madison eventually came around, though, believing them to be more culturally valuable than maybe technically valuable when it comes to the Constitution. So I kind of understand that, and I don't think that I'm, I'm biasing, <laughs> being biased in favor of Madison for that, but when it comes to the cultural value of it, you can see kind of how effective it can be to have this idea of freedom of speech, even more than just enforcing it through the courts, you know, just having the idea culturally that there's free speech does a lot more for people being able to say what they want to say and get ideas out there than just being able to enforce it legally. And even though, like, sometimes I'll watch, like, public freakouts or something like that, a compilation of that, somebody says in every one of those compilations, somebody says, free speech, you know, and I, I love it. I, lo I love to hear it, even though they're idiots. So I greatly appreciate that. It is a cultural thing. So he brings up consumer, oh, consumer sovereignty. So, like, uh, having the ability to dictate as a consumer what you're going to get or not get. You know, on social media, there is kind of this idea of, I'm the consumer, I get what I want. So, and if I don't get what I want, I'm going to go somewhere else. And what I want, if I want to have nothing but one side of a political argument funneled down my gullet, then I can have that because I have consumer sovereignty. So he's fighting against that idea, saying that uh, it's actually bad for a democracy to have that kind of a thing. He talks about cyber cascades and how they kind of lead, they funnel the, their way, information funnels its way to a certain idea because you only get information from one side and you can you can cultivate the kinds of people that you talk to and kinds of information that you get. It talks about confirmation bias, insulated communities who only have one idea and stick to it and support each other on it, uh, polarization because you have two sides that just talk to each other. Uh, he talks about how fragmentation undermines shared conversations and experiences that support democracy, so like I talked about earlier. And did uh, he he was quoting somebody where, where he said that, you know, a physicist studies physics, they study particles, but uh, somebody who's a sociologist or something like that, uh, just imagine studying physics if every particle could think. So it's actually a really, really complex system that you have to try to understand. So uh, it's kind of understandable that it's so difficult. And uh, he, he brings up biased assimilation. So when it comes to assimilating new information, how we're, we tend to bias it in whatever favor, you know, our pre-held proposition is, then we will bias information that comes in in favor of supporting that. And even neutral evidence, it doesn't make people neutral. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't affect their pre-held ideas. Brings up, oh yeah, the, then there was a whole chapter on cyber cascades and how informational cascades, how you rely on others, and how their reputational cascades. And I can't go into that into much more detail because I don't remember a whole much about it, but <laughs> I remember it's a word that stands out, but I think it goes along the same ideas. He brings up the 50 cent party in China. I had no idea this existed, uh, but apparently the Chinese authorities hire people to go on social media. And I saw one count, there's like 450 million users that they go on social media and they sell the virtues of the Chinese Communist Party. Like, how can that not be just 1984 adjacent where they have to sell the virtues of their party like that? I mean, obviously we don't, ha we're not, <laughs> 
<laughs> we're not categorically different. It's like the government does sell itself. There's no question about that. Politicians sell themselves. That's what they do. They definitely hire people to do that. <laughs> I mean, there are volunteers and stuff, but there are ways that they go about selling themselves, but not in such a way where they pay people and they, they get like 50 cents per tweet or something like that. That's how it works. That's why it's called the 50 cent party. They have people go on social media and just have to say how awesome the Communist Party is. And it's just, I mean, at least the shill journalists at like MSNBC or CNN or, or Vox or whatever, at least they like make an attempt. They still get paid for it. They're like, you know, prostitutes. <laughs> they get paid for selling this ideology. But to some degree, they genuinely believe a lot of this. I'm sure they get radicalized for purposes of attacking the other side and getting more clicks. They radicalize themselves. But still, they to some degree believe what they're saying. But to just hire people to go and sell your party, that's pretty ridiculous. Then, it, so there's a lot of filler in this book. It's like 300 pages and it doesn't need to be by any stretch of the imagination. But he goes into like, what's regulation? So he's trying to sell regulation. I keep using this word sell now. But he's trying to argue for regulation uh, for purposes of getting to regulating speech. And he goes like all the way back. It's like if you're talking about baseball and you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, you know, it's it's like you don't really need to. I don't actually believe in a literal Adam and Eve. That was just a, you know, joke, a facetious way to going going about that. <laughs> So, just to be clear on that. But you don't have to go all the way back like that. You don't have to... Okay, no, we need regulation sometime, somewhere. I'm pretty sure everybody agrees on that. He also brings up the beginnings of the internet, like ARPANET, uh, developed by the government and all sorts of stuff, and copyright and property law, and he's trying to argue in favor of those things, and it's just like, you don't need to go that far back. Come on. And then he gets into some uh, freedom of speech issues, and this is actually a fascinating area because he talks about how there was an abortion doctor hit list, and it just made me think of Mac. <laughs> I don't know who's seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but when Mac was like, these are the doctors I'm gonna kill, but he's trying to get with that girl who's pro-life, and he's uh, here's a list of the doctors I'm gonna kill, and she's like, oh my gosh, and he's like, there are already three names crossed out, and he's like, I know, and then she just started... <laughs> starts kissing him. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's such a good show. I haven't seen most recent seasons, though. I don't know if it stays good, but there are so many good episodes of that. They're so hilarious. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, so abortion doctor hit list. So there, so that's a pretty extreme example where it's like, here are all the people I want to kill or I want somebody to kill. And putting that out there and saying that's speech and protected speech, that's that's one of those borderline examples. It's not necessarily, I mean, it's kind of calling for imminent violence, but it has to be a cognizable threat. So if you just plop it out there and say anybody who's a taker, you know, then it's not really imminent. So he says something something about how you can abuse the First Amendment like you can abuse, you can abuse the Second Amendment. And I'm not sure, I can't remember the details of this. Uh, I actually read this a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how you really abuse an amendment. It's like the amendment gives you the rights that it gives you. And that's what you have. Anything beyond that, you can't do, uh, you know, and anything below that, you are protected. So I don't know how you really abuse that. Like, you can't really abuse the Second Amendment. I mean, under current Second Amendment jurisprudence, prudence uh, under Scalia's decision. It's just that you have a right to a handgun in the home for protection. That's what you well, that's what you get from the Second Amendment. So you're not really abusing the Second Amendment if you go and buy an AR-15. That's not necessarily protected by the Second Amendment, by the legal definition of what it is. It could be in the future. It might, you know, it could be tested by the courts and determined that it's not protected if all of the states ban it or something like that. Still, I don't know how you can abuse a second, uh, an amendment 
amendment and I'd have to reread that chapter to get what he's getting at I'm sure but I'm not going to because it's a long book and he brings up a distinction between harmful and harmless speech and that's I'm that's questionable to me I mean when you start talking about some kind of a subjective harm related to speech then we have a problem like there are things and I'm fine with certain caveats like uh, when it comes to libel and slander like things that are demonstrably harmful and could cause significant harm in other ways so like a business if they just constantly if they had way more money on the other side and were just constantly saying how terrible they were and making all sorts of outlandish claims about the danger of their product or something like that and it caused the the business to go under it's like there has to be some kind of a line so that you can have some kind of a, a neutral playing field for being able to have speech so there are going to be some lines when it comes to those kinds of categories and there are some extreme examples when it comes to intentional infliction of emotional distress and and that sort of a thing Uh, but those are very discrete categories legally and just harmful versus harmless speech uh, is kind of a different thing i don't know if he's he's arguing for making these categories here i just have this in my notes that he he put this on there so i'm not sure but anything that tries to connect speech to physical harm like in the assault or battery context and of course assault can just include an apprehension of imminent harm so that doesn't actually involve contact in most states under the law batteries the actual contact anyway that's that's beyond the beyond the pale here he talks about you know regulating speech on a content-based structure versus a viewpoint neutral structure under most freedom of speech cases it's the idea that you can't do it based on content it has to be viewpoint neutral the content of the speech is irrelevant to to whatever whether it's going to be protected or not and he says that private action is preferred by far which is i mean that's a great tack to take tack to take but obviously it's it's not going to be very effective generally I mean, people could have certainly argued that when it came to other big ideas or big things that happened, that private action would have been preferred. I I see where he's coming from here. It it definitely is preferred that these individual companies take private action to support the spirit of free speech, even if they're not governed by the legalities of free speech. Oh, he brings up the Rappaport rules that Daniel Dennett loves. Uh, So the Rappaport rules are ways that you're supposed to approach arguing against somebody. And rule number one, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks. I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Number two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. Number three, you should mention anything you have learned from your target. And number four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. If everybody did this, the world would be 132,000% better. That might be a slight overestimation. I didn't do the math, but if we had to do this every time we argued against somebody, it would elongate conversations like crazy, but there would be no actual conflicts between people. (laughs) Just imagine people like getting into a bar fight and having to go into this analysis. (laughs) Okay, your position is that I bumped your elbow. I, yeah, I don't think there would be any conflicts anymore, but anyway, so that's a a good method for doing that. And he talks about how it would be great if partisan newspapers had like an icon of opposing sites that had opposing views, or you had an opposing viewpoint button on Facebook that you could just click to see the the opposing view, the opposite side of a given take that you're reading. Uh, That would be fantastic. It'd be wonderful. Facebook would never do it. I don't think (laughs) they just want people on the platform. They want people who are on the platform to feel happy and stay 
stay on the platform, so I don't know if triggering them, especially under the rubric of today's clown world, I don't know that triggering them with something that pops up that says the opposite of what they think would be acceptable to a lot of people, especially on the left, nowadays. So uh, I love it, but I don't know about that. And then he, he talked about a serendipity button too on social media, which would be great. That just took you to somewhere random, that, <laughs> a viewpoint that's completely random. And then he gets into terrorism and uh, this is another area of speech where if terrorists are recruiting on social media, should you allow this to happen? Like actual terrorists who are trying to get people to blow up, you know, synagogues or something like that, then uh, should you allow that to happen? And this is an area where I completely understand you'd love to be able to say, just let them have it. And then the FBI and people like that will have better opportunity to be able to track them and, and find them and shut them down for good and, and all that. But I don't know if you want to leave it to that sequence of events. Maybe you do want to have kind of an interest in keeping them from getting people in the ranks in the first place. I'm not sure. I'm not sure on that, but I can definitely see it. He talks about how terrorists have a crippled epistemology. Oh, he talks about it from the other direction that terrorists don't have access to other viewpoints, and so they have a crippled epistemology. So they don't have access to other knowledge that would challenge their own, and that's how recruiters work in these circles, and I mean, that's how it works with cults, obviously. That's how it works with a lot of religions. That's how it works in far-right and far-left organizations, where they just sequester themselves so they can keep supporting each other and maintain all these uh, extreme ideas, not allow things to creep in that would undermine them. He talks about uh, clear and present danger tests under First Amendment law. It has to be likely and present. There was a previous precedent before this test that said something about you could regulate speech when it had a bad tendency. Just imagine nowadays, if that was still the standard, how much you could get rid of, how much speech you'd be able to prevent. Learned hand preferred not to protect calls to violence, even if not imminent. So Learned Hand, I remember hearing that name for the first time in law school, and I was like, that's his name? But yes, yes it was. And, I mean, it's pretty gangster, but uh, I don't agree with him at all, any whatsoever. So even calls to violence, that leaves way too much space for when it comes to, I don't know, like you're writing a novel, or you're just angry, or you're just saying something to be facetious, or, or just getting something off your chest, or whatever else. I mean, imagine how many people just say, oh, I would, I want to kill that person or something like that. I'm going to punch you in the face. I've said that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> to many people, and some of them were tiny, and I, I didn't do it, okay, I haven't done it, the only people I punched in the face were in an actual fight, and they were of my age, but calls to violence just in general, vaguely, without the qualifier of imminence, I don't think at all that should be the standard. Brandeis said the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence, and the whole concept of enforced silence, I think, is a powerful thing. So long, historically, people were enforced with silence so that they couldn't speak on certain topics and we have to be extremely careful about ever let that letting that happen again i think it's the most important development in human history to make sure that speech is protected then it's a marketplace of ideas it's a darwinian you know uh, let the things that are most right win and sometimes that leads to bad things you know bad ideas being perpetuated like the wage gap but most of the time it has a clarifying mechanism especially if we could implement things that made people expose themselves whether culture 
naturally or deliberately through social media or whatever else expose themselves to other ideas and other perspectives. I think that's the most important thing that we can do now, going forward, in the future, in every way, I think it's the most important thing. And this particular author, Cass Sunstein, suggests that restrictions on speech should be expanded to include things so you'd expand either the to like a serious risk of public safety also being not just like violence or you know cognizable violence on a defined target but where there's a serious serious risk to public safety i don't know what that would mean but he's trying to broaden it a little bit or broaden imminent so it's not just like imminent meaning a right now or within the next couple of hours or something like that but maybe a week or maybe a month is still imminent so i don't like that at all i think that's wrong and shouldn't be the case and i think it's much better to keep the standard that we have now which gives us a little space to regulate speech uh, so we have some space in that area but doesn't try to push its way in too much we need to be able to say as much as we can freaking say so then he brings up the problem of self-insulation i don't remember what the context of this was but he brings it up toward the end but anyway obviously these are really complex issues there are a lot of questions i definitely fall on the side of allowing as much speech as humanly possible and we can't have a legal category of saying that somebody's subjective feelings are the basis for determining speech is violence or speech is harmful in such a way that it should be regulated. I think we need to avoid that as much as humanly possible. Right now, we do have a category for intentional infliction of emotional distress. That's only in some jurisdictions. Or, or do some jurisdictions just get rid of negligent infliction of emotional distress? I know intentional infliction of emotional distress is one is a special category. So are like libel and slander or special categories that have very distinct and, and specific requirements to be able to establish those. So we have to be very careful about expanding anywhere beyond any of that. But there, I mean, there are other categories of, and this is going off book, I've finished the book. <laughs> And like I said, a lot of filler, but there's some good information in there. And I don't agree with his arguments related to what First Amendment jurisprudence should look like. But there are good things to talk about throughout and everything about people not being insulated and the idea of a competing view button and all that is fantastic. Now I forgot which way I was going to go. So it's just when it comes to speech, though, obviously there's a distinction between the speech that is in a public forum, the speech that is on a private platform. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other issues related to that a platform versus a publisher. If they're a publisher, then they're subject to libel and slander laws. If they're just a phone company, then they're just a platform and they're not. You can say whatever you want on the phone and no phone company is going to be responsible for it. They don't tag you every time you say the, no the word Nazi and then say that, okay, you don't get to use the phone anymore. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. And I really think that platforms like Facebook, like Twitter should go that direction as well. Although I do understand, but only to a very minimal, minuscule degree, I do understand them wanting to keep people on the platform and not having a whole bunch of horrible stuff being said on there. You know, if everybody's just talking about racist and sexist and pedophilic stuff, if that's all they're talking about, then I understand they, they're worried that people are not going to want to be on the platform. And they have some kind of a right to protect their economic interests to be able to keep that off their platform or pornography or, or whatever. So I understand that to some degree, but I definitely advocate as much speech as we can possibly have and no subjective standard for harm related to somebody saying something that somebody else doesn't like and be as content neutral as possible. I love speech. I love talking. I love writing. I love being able to read what other people say. I love when I run into somebody who's just absolutely horrible and inflammatory and just saying all the worst things in the world because those are the easiest one to argue argue against. I mean, it's more fun to argue when it's it's more competitive, <laughs> you know, just like anything else. When you can just destroy your brother on Tatchus attack, it's not as much fun. <laughs> 
<laughs> best remedy is sunlight. The best remedy is more speech, not enforced silence. I think enforced silence should be give chills to anybody who has an interest in freedom. I hate using how broad that term is, but you know, freedom in the context of this this country in this century. I think anybody should be terrified of an idea like enforced silence, and not only that, but just forcing ideas we don't like underground instead of arguing against them to oblivion. So anyway, that was the last coffee house. I love talking about this stuff and I cannot wait to get to the next next book. I've got several coming up. I can't wait to talk about 100 Years of Solitude. It's just it's so massive and there's so much to talk about and I don't want to make a 2 hour <laughs> which dude wouldn't even do it justice. I don't want to make a 2 hour episode or anything like that. That also also take me like 6 hours to record and edit. So <laughs> I don't have all that much time. But uh, it's gonna come soon, and then some other stuff. I'm sure there are individual political issues that'll come up that I'll talk about, but otherwise, and a couple of movies. I saw Midsummer. it was so interesting, and there's so many good things about it. And so I think I wanna talk about it at some point, but I don't really wanna spoil it for people, so I'm giving some time, and then I think I'll just do a like half episode non-spoiler and half episode with spoilers. Uh, but I saw that, and there are a lot of things going on. Anyway, so that was The Last Coffee House. Thank you again, hope all is well. You can follow me on Goodreads, John Shade Reads, and see what I'm reading so you can see what's coming up. Otherwise, thanks. Bye.